Ready? And I'm Isabel. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About the self-same mayor of Marbury. About bad dads. About good bodies. About insomnia. About putting a hat on a hat. About gossip in small towns. About lush, plumly purple prose. <laughs> about highway women. About love triangles. <laughs> about lying to people you love. <laughs> about dubious consent. <laughs> surprisingly about that a lot. Maybe not so surprisingly. Good point. Uh, but mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week's romance that this show is about is A Rose in Winter by Kathleen E. Woodowis. wonder if the E stands for Ariane. I think it stands for Elaine. Oh, or Emeritus. <laughs> also, I love that you pronounce it Ariane. I just pronounced it Aaron. Oh, it could be that too. <laughs> so we both read this one. No, no audiobooks, huh? No audiobooks. Oh, that's because the... The audiobook is not out yet. It's coming out. That's interesting. Pre-order for like 40 bucks. Sounds like a scam. May or may not be real. I don't know about that. I mean, unless it's uh, Richard Armitage, because then I would definitely spend $40 to hear this man read this book. It is not. It is. But it looks like they're redoing like all of Woodywiss's audiobooks. That makes sense. I do think it's us. It's definitely us. We We were the reason... It's making a comeback. Yeah, April, April or May 9th, actually, you'll be mm. able to pick up some classic Woodowis uh, audiobooks. Ashes in the Wind, A Rose mm. in Winter, mm. Shanna, mm. which we've talked about, Petals on the River, Come Love a Stranger, So Worthy My Love, which nice. was the loser. <laughs> the loser. So this week we are reading A Rose in Winter because we wanted to get back to kind of our roots reading a classic romance, and we wanted to read a Woodowis. I believe Isabeau had a hankering in particular, and we asked our listeners, or our followers, I should say, on Instagram, if they would prefer to hear us talk about A Rose in Winter or So Worthy My Love, and A Rose in Winter won by two votes. Polarization strikes in Instagram as well as our politics. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so, yeah, that's why we're we're reading A Rose in Winter. We've also read, in case you are not a longtime listener, one of the first books we talked about was Shanna. And then we also read Woodowis's first publication, which was The Flame and the Flower. Mm-hmm. And if you prefer to hear us talk about books um, inebriated, I would recommend turning off this episode and going to one of those two. Because I don't know if you remember this, Isabeau, we created a shot specifically for Flame and the Flower. I remember that shot being delicious, Morgan. It was a combination of fireball and orange blossom liqueur. Yeah, that is, that was the vibe of both that book, that night, and like the way that I wanted to talk about it. No regrets. We talked about Shanna, I think the same night we talked about Beast by Judith Ivory. Holy shit, what a combo. And I think it was like after the fact. So it's like 11 p.m., 
at your old apartment, mm-hmm. dining room table, mm-hmm. and we definitely had a bottle of wine at that point. God, those were the days, man. Like, honestly, the sound quality is better this way, but I miss being inebriated at my dining room table with you. <laughs> I miss it sometimes, too, but I am kind of glad that we're going to be, like, hyper-present for one of these Kathleen Woodowisses. Like, <laughs> Rather than seeing it through the Vaseline rose-colored glasses of the yeah, fog of our joy. The, the Vaseline-schmeared lens. So I'll read the back of the book. Thank you. That's that's what we should do? Okay. That's what we should do. A heart tormented. That's the worst way a heart can be. <laughs> Aaron's father had given her hand to the richest suitor. She was now Lady Saxton, mistress of a great manor, all but ruined by fire. Wife to a man whose mysteriously shrouded form aroused fear and pity. Yet even as she fell in love with her adoring husband, Aaron despaired of freeing her heart from the dashingly handsome Yankee who couldn't forget her. The beautiful Aaron, once filled with young dreams of romance, was now a wife and woman torn between two men she loved. Bum, bum, bum. Kathleen Aaron Hogg was born <laughs> on June 3rd, 1939 in Alexandria, Louisiana. Youngest oh. of eight. I feel like that explains a lot. Aaron. It kind of. Yeah. Oh, it's a little. <laughs> also, Morgan, she's a baby just like us. Babies fucks with babies. Babies fucks with babies. I <laughs> saw a quote from her recently about her writing process and how, you know, I'd heard something about like she was able to write her first novel once she got a typewriter. And I always thought that was kind of like interesting. Mm hmm. And I imagined it being some sort of like deranged artistry, like her mind was working too fast for her hands. Mm -hmm. But then I saw a quote where she was like, you know, it was just impossible for me to write with any kind of efficiency because I would like sit down and get two sentences written out and then like the kids were hungry and then I had to clean their dishes. And she like really bemoaned the kind of wife and motherhoodness of it all and how the typewriter, like the mechanization was what kind of freed her to have more than one responsibility in the world. Lean in, ladies. (laughs) (laughs) Your robot overlords don't have to be bad. They're making your life easier so you can do more. (laughs) Not just so that you can have more free time from doing the one thing you do. Anyway. Where do we begin? Well, okay. First of all, I want to give a heads up that we're probably going to talk about spoilers, but I think we should try to avoid talking about them for a while. Okay. Because, you know, a love triangle. Maybe you'd like to tune in and, like, listen to this episode just to figure out if you're interested in reading the rest of the book. So why don't we start by talking about Erin slash Arianne. She has blue-purple amethyst eyes. She has long, dark hair. She is svelte and just over 20. She has practically no body at all. (laughs) She is described in continuous and unrelenting uh, diminutive terms. She has trim waist. She has small waist. She has... Any kind of version of waist where her ass and tits are huge, but her waist is small. <laughs> a man's merest hand can span her waist. <laughs> Indeed. I know a lot about the color of her eyes, like wet velvets. It's very clear to me that um, 
Kathleen Woodaway like read something about Elizabeth Taylor and just modeled this character off of the physicality of that person in one of her very early roles. Mm, black Beauty. <laughs> yeah, something like a childlike. <laughs> Tween superstar Elizabeth Taylor. Eyes like wet violets. Aaron is in kind of a sticky wicket though. And like, so just as her physical appearance is highly, highly typical for what you'd expect in a Wodowice, big hair of varying colors, tiny waist. She is also like our other Wodowice heroines in that she starts the book off in kind of dire straits. Mm -hmm. Her father is the mayor of Maubry. Because he used to be somebody in London, and then he gambled away the family fortune. And so the guy that he squired for, some lord, gave him the mayorship of Mowbray, and he was accused of cheating at cards against this rakish Yankee. And uh, his son, defending his honor, challenged the Yankee to a duel and got shot in the arm, Mm -hmm. in the elbow. And uh, never quite recovered and has himself sunken into habits of gambling and alcoholism, not unlike his father. And Aaron is just trying to keep this whole thing together with fishing line and chewing gum. But her father knows the only way he'll be able to pay back the Yankee uh, for his gambling debts is by marrying Aaron off. He wants to give her to someone rich. But Aaron has insisted she wants to marry someone she respects. Um, not that the text is self-aware of this, but she, in fact, just wants to marry someone hot. Yeah. She is presented with various suitors, um, and she mostly focuses on how unattractive they are. Yep. Um, she calls one the gray albino, which I thought was both cutting and very descriptive. The best, Aaron scoffed. You brought me the best, you say? You brought a wheezing fat glutton, a stumbling half-blind old man, a bone-thin pinchpinny with hairy warts on his cheeks, and you say you've brought me the best? A uh, little bit of a brat. Little bit of a brat, but I don't think the book thinks of her that way. No, not the way that the book understood Shanna, for instance. No, no, no. Erin um, is understood to deserve. So, like, she only wants someone she can respect. Unfortunately, Erin can only respect hotties. I mean. And likewise, as goes the heroine, so goes the book. <laughs> yep. Super true. So she... She meets a hottie. Mega hottie. And it just turns out that he's like American, first of all. Tall, second of all. Sea captain. Sea captain. Wealthy, well-to-do sea captain. He's got green eyes with flashes of gray. Nice. He's got must hair, messy brown hair. Mm-hmm. Big tan hands. Mm-hmm. But not like super big, because even though one of his big tan hands can span Aaron's waist, like we have to like mitigate that that still means she has a small waist. So he doesn't have like Hulk hands, but like big normal man hands. <laughs> big enough to rescue her, big enough to like field an axe or like take care of a giant stallion named Saracen. Steer a ship. <laughs> He's got hot, hot hands. hands. <laughs> And this, ladies and gentlemen, is Christopher Seaton. He has come to Maubry for some reason. I, like, he docks his ship at the town south of there. Yeah, because Maubry is not on the coast. 
And he says that he's staying in Maubry so that he can collect his gambling debt from Aaron's father, Avery. Mm-hmm. Which, reading about an old man named Avery, I know that we're on the cusp of that being a thing again, mm-hmm. but it was still kind of uh, shocking or disorienting. Yeah, for sure. Names are funny. So he's here to collect his gambling debts, <laughs> and everyone's like, that's totally legit, super hot dude. And everyone thinks he's hot, right? The book thinks he's hot. Our Aaron thinks he's hot. The local doxy, Molly, thinks he's hot and is like constantly trying to have sex with him for free, which is obviously a bad business proposal for her. Um, everyone, including the bullies in the town, also uh, are keenly aware of his hotness. How handsome he is. He's also wealthy. He's also foreign he's got it going on yeah he's mysterious the one thing he doesn't have going on is shooting aaron's brother in the elbow because she realizes who he is Mm -hmm. after a set of humorous little case of mistaken identity and she gets real mad at him says i would never marry you Mm -hmm. not for not for any reason ever i would rather marry an ugly old cripple that's what she says and eventually Because she's so stubborn about not marrying anybody, her dad decides that he's going to auction off her hand in marriage. Because he's got to pay his debts. He's got to pay his debts. And he thought she could bring in 5K. I'm not looking up what that is in inflation. That's probably for the best. I think 5K is like the perfect amount of money to say anything thing expensive costs you know in ye olden times well not just ye olden times like i still think it it packs a punch you know absolutely it does but you know bingley was worth five thousand a year so that's like there we go he's yeah to put it in those terms it's it's just the right amount of a lot of money yeah i agree and she can do sums she can read she she can she contains multitudes because her mother who was irish or was just in love with an irish radical um taught her things that couldn't be taken from her because she knew that avery was pretty unscrupulous yes and uh she was correct all of her predictions came true so (laughs) good job mom Aaron tries to escape she gets run down by hounds, knocks her head on a creek, and then wakes up in a mysterious mansion that has supposedly been abandoned. Um, and she's nursed back to health by a mysterious figure. And then sent on her way to get auctioned off, where she is purchased by the person who supposedly nursed her back to health, the Lord... Saxton. Saxton? The Lord Saxton! Who has returned to his family home. Okay. I don't want to get political on this show. You guys know that. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. But but the town of Maubry is on the border of Scotland and England. Sure is. And this estate, the Saxton estate, is smack on the edge. And supposedly, twice now, the Lord of Saxton's have been uh, run out of town, murdered, or the mansion was set on fire and they had to flee. And so it's been unoccupied for decades. Decade. Couple of years. Literal literal fives of years. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and um, and now this Lord Saxon has returned, but he is he has been maimed by the burning right. that has always been attributed to the Scottish rebels, but uh, never actually proven. And in fact, 
Lord Saxton says up and down that it wasn't Scottish rebels, that it was indeed miscreants of the English sort. So what's this guy's deal? Well, he wears a leather mask. (laughs) A black leather mask with little squares cut out for his mouth. It's like man in the iron mask, but leather. So kinky. (laughs) this reminded me of when we were reading Shanna and I was like I think she might just be into some weird shit and Mm -hmm. not ready to address it he's got leather gloves I wanted to say fans of this show leather gloves but we are in fact fans this show is fans of leather gloves yeah this show is fans of leather gloves he also has a very strange gait and one of his feet is like twisted in yeah and he's got like a special boot That's supposed to recover the length of his um, injured leg. And he wears a giant black cloak the whole time. And he refuses to show Aaron his face because if he did, he would repulse her so much that she would never knock boots with him. She would hate him forever. He says this a lot. He would really, really like it. He would really, really like it if she wanted to knock boots with him. She, he wants her to want it, in fact, which is, you know. Breath of fresh air for 1982. Or does he? (laughs) So when we're, you know, we're a third of the way through the text, right? Mm -hmm. Picture it. We are situated in Lord Saxton's home. Aaron is married. Uh, We know, sure, we know Christopher. He's, He's there as well. Who did you like better? Who are you rooting for? Obviously, I was rooting for Christopher uh, because he's sexy. What? His sexy banter. He's American. He's a sea captain. His shirt is always open slightly. Like, he's about to, like, be on board ship. And, like, his chest is referred to as furred. And I'm very into that aesthetic right now for whatever reason. And um, he's just, like, constantly showing up to, like, tease her and just, like. You're so cold. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wish, I wish there was a furry chest next to me. I don't know, it's, it's just so like, damn cold. He just kind of reminded me of the, um, the human form of the beast at the end of the animated Beauty and the Beast. You know, he's got this long, beautiful hair. He's no, you're you're manipulating me now. He's got like these really handsome hands, and like I like stop. He's it. so funny, and he just like constantly shows up to niggle her. And I think part of the reason why I was rooting for Christopher is because niggle. <laughs> yeah, you know, like needle her. Um... <laughs> Part of the reason why I liked him is because I preferred their dynamic because she was so much more um, evocative and like uh, bratty and like fun when he was around. Whereas when Lord Saxton showed up, she was very afraid and like did a she had to do a lot of internal work with Lord Saxton about like how to overcome her fear and like her repulsion and like all of that stuff. Um but she was just more fun to watch interact with Christopher Seaton, I thought. I loved Saxton. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Team team Saxton. Why does that make sense to you? Because he's like dark and brooding and also like incredibly kind and self-deprecating and weird and like shows up and like watches her be naked. His scenes are very sexy. Yeah. And he just says the most, like, incredible things. Yeah, he does. I 
I have all these comments, highlighted sections where I commented things like, I long, I die, <laughs> I cannot abide. He's incredible. You love longing. It's your favorite part. I love longing. And it's all about, Saxton is all about longing. Yeah, he is. He is like longing personified. He is He is distilled down to that single emotion. Seton's got other stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, he does. He's like, you know, almost cacophonious, whereas Saxton is pure longing. And part of the reason why he's pure longing, right, is like we don't see any part of him other than this like black mask, black gloves, and like black cape. And also he just like shows up at bedtime and like talks to her while she's afraid. And he's like, I want you to want to have sex with me. I want you to come to me. I'm never going to like force you. And he's like constantly showing up in her rooms while she's like out of the bath. And like, he's like, just don't lock the door between us. And even that like is both terrifying and sexy because he like he shows up at weird times and yeah, he's just, he is just a distilled emotion, which is interesting for a heroic character. Just to be one, and just to be one that is a pretty passive thing. And he made it so alive. He made longing electric. I, like, love, like, these little things. My father and brother, she said slowly, are they fools in your eyes? Your father? I hesitate to judge. He laughed easily and dusted the knee of his breeches. (laughs) I am sure that before I would yield you up, I would prove myself a fool several times over. Ugh, he's delightful. And it is. It's all warm, cozy mystery and longing. And yeah, I love, I love Saxton. He's really good. He also shows up, um, he has this whole thing with her dad where they've just been married and the dad's like, I, you know, I could really use some more money. And he's like, I've set aside an allowance for your daughter. His lordship tone was harsh. She chooses to help you, she may. But I will give nothing more to you without her approval. He really, like, way more than Seton. He's like, wants her to be an equal partner in the Saxton household. And so, like, he gives her a ton of autonomy and, like, wants her to have her own relationships with the servants and, like, just, like, won't do things without asking her, which is also very sexy. And I think we should start getting into, like, all the references that this text has. Mm -hmm. I find Saxton to be remarkable, like, the Best, most interesting Batman. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He talks about how, like, murder has no place in justice. He's avenging his dead parents. He lives in a big mansion full of drippy tunnels that he hides in. And that brings us to this third person, who is the masked writer, mm-hmm. who is Saxton. The Nighthawk. Or is he Seton? Or is who is he? He wears a black leather mask and an all black outfit and rides a giant black horse. But he has a weird accent. <laughs> Does a voice. He is Batman. Totally. He's catching all the highwaymen and trying to work his way up the ladder because he knows that this goes straight to the top of the political system of Gotham, a.k.a. Maugry. Mm-hmm. He's got a loyal butler. Mm-hmm. Oh, my Bundy. God. Forget it. I guess Bundy is technically his groom or whatever. Yeah, his valet. His man of all work. It's his valet because, 
Yeah, because Payne is the butler and Aggie is the housekeeper. <laughs> so I, I loved the Batman of it all. I did too, because it's really it's really satisfying because Woodowis sets up a lot of villains. Like there are so many villains in this story, um, not the least of which yeah. are some pretty physically ugly and internally ugly uh, human beings. Although <laughs> the one, the first. Literally everyone. But the three people we've talked about so far are basically pig <laughs> And that's classic Woodowis. She makes everyone Dirty. Like, drippingly disgusting. It's so true. People that will be like, uh, historical romance, I don't think it's sexy because think about everybody's dental problems. Um, <laughs> Catherine Lean Woodowis will put the dental problems on the page. And then she'll say something like, <laughs> Aaron was had some secret knowledge and had invented the toothbrush. So she was fine. She was clean. She also but invented shampoo. <laughs> she was, she smelled like jasmine. She bathed in creeks of clear water <laughs> as the suds dripped down her naturally firm breasts onto her taut stomach with her like barely existent waist. <laughs> Unlike the lascivious Timmy Sears. The big-faced bully who's dirty from head to toe. Like, it goes through the trouble of being, like, big, but in the unattractive (laughs) way. Not, like, Seton. Right. Like, like, literally, poor Timmy Sears. (laughs) Timmy Sears. He's, like, big, dumb, brutal. He's got, and she even describes it as, like, having brutish fingers, where it's, like, they're, like, Mm-hmm. Big but short and stubby, like little like hot dog hands, which is so funny in comparison <laughs> to Seton, who, as we have discussed, has hot hands. Well, she like it's clear that she ran out of words to describe how hot Seton's hands are, so she just had to put some hands next to his hands that were worse, and so she could then use comparison to reiterate how very, very hot Seton's hands are. This is very show-don't-tell. Very show-don't-tell. And it's also important that, like, the leather gloves make Saxton's hands feel cold and lizard-like for some reason. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of hand stuff. A lot of hand stuff. Episode title, (laughs) hand stuff. (laughs) This book, okay, here's the thing about Woodowis. I wonder if you agree. Woodowis seems to be consciously trying to write something, like something specific a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. But it never works out that way. What do you mean? So, for example, in this book, in this text, I think she is consciously trying to write a Beauty and the Beast story. But because she's consciously trying to do that, it's unsuccessful. And all of the unconscious work she's doing is way more interesting. Hmm. One of the things I propose to you is that this is, in fact, not a... Beauty and the Beast retelling, but a Phantom of the Opera retelling. And this is based entirely on the fact that there is a scene where Aaron hears a harpsichord playing and walks downstairs into the music room where there is a candelabra on top of the harpsichord and that's the only light. And... Saxton is playing the harpsichord and then he's like stop and he like puts on his mask again um, before facing her 
like I I was thinking about the difference between Phantom of the Opera and Beauty and the Beast, and one of the things is the character is his name Eric the Phantom. Uh, he's born with his disfigurement, and the Beast is initially beautiful and then punished by being made to look funny. Um, and it seems strange that that seem like the origin story seems to matter the least in interpretations of that kind of core sense of being to to be someone who has lost versus being um, a character who has always been on the outside looking in. And that feels core to me, but it feels like it's also something that has been missed in a lot of interpretations of Beauty and the Beast, or just seems Mm -hmm. unimportant. And so, like, what is the important part of Beauty and the Beast? And why is it the most interesting fairy tale (laughs) I think we can retell? I think you're right to say that the origin of the disfigurement matters because it it forces the Beast to learn a lesson, right? Because the Beast believes that no one can love him. And he believes that because he used to be beautiful and now he's not. And it like shows the progression of the Beast's changing understanding of what beauty is and what beauty can be. And it also does that for the Belle character, the beauty character. I think here too, there's something where it's like, Christine doesn't end up with the Phantom at the end of Phantom of the Opera. She ends up with beautiful Raoul. Um, And there's something here too, and I agree that like the mythology that this is based on feels a bit fuzzy and kind of runs up into some of the same problems that A Court of Thorns and Roses runs into, where it's both a Beauty and the Beast tale on its face, but it also borrows heavily from other kinds of myths, right? Like this idea that the person who comes to you at night to have a sexual relationship with you is not revealed to you. And you are curious about them, but there's a cost to your curiosity, right? That's the Cupid and Psyche myth. That's the Tamlin. That's also the, there's a myth in um, Norwegian culture like the polar bear king where it's like you (laughs) literally marry a beast by day who's a handsome beautiful man at night but you can't reveal that secret because once you reveal it they're taken from you or once you find out they're taken from you and so to mash those two stories together in this way is interesting to me and I think you're right there's like a there's a slippage because like on the one hand, Beast has to learn something about, like, our internalities. And on the other, there's one about punishing female curiosity. <laughs> um, and, like, this plays at both ends, but plays it weird, well, I think. I, like, I don't think there's anything going on in this text that has to do with female curiosity. Certainly female fear. Certainly female fear. And I think that's the thing that you can attribute to Beauty and the Beast as well. Like, Belle ends up, mm-hmm. Belle is just so good in self-sacrificing that she ends right. up in this position. Um, she's such a, you know, filial piety or whatever um, is what puts her in the position to be under the same roof. And I don't, you know, I don't want to give Woodawis too much credit. I don't see like a lot of Cupid and Psyche. Like I don't see a lot of evidence that there's other mythos 
at least consciously being referenced here. Um, but there are these times when she like really forces the idea of a beast mm-hmm. um, out of nowhere. And I'm thinking about towards the end of the book specifically, where out of nowhere she says, uh, Aaron, I have found my rose in winter. You are my own precious love. Promise to me evermore. Come, my love. The beast can only flee the two of us together. I want to assure you that there is nowhere where a beast is referenced prior. <laughs> so what is the beast can only flee the two of us together? Doesn't Saxton refer to himself as a beast a couple of times before that moment? No, Seton refers to Saxton as a beast. You would prefer the beast to me. Other people refer to him as beast. But this isn't referring to Saxton. Come, my love, the beast can only flee the two of us together. What the fuck does that even mean? She's referring to Saxton's fear that she'll find him repulsive. And she's like, you have to reveal yourself. No, she, and she's, she's talking to Christopher. My darling Christopher, she brought her hands together in a prayerful pose. I would not have you risk yourself, but find a way to free me and slay my beast forever. I have found my rose in winter. You are my own precious love. Promise to me evermore. Come, my love. The beast can only flee the two of us together. What is the, con- where is this happening? What's the context? Is this at the very end when she's been captured? This is after she's been rescued. So this is like the denouement? Yeah. I think it's just bad shit. Like, I, I trust my reading comprehension skills enough to think that this is kind of forced poetry. And it's trying to seal a reference that isn't necessarily earned. I mean, the whole third act is bad shit. But that's what I mean. Like, the Beauty and the Beast thing, it sort of works in that the text wants us to think of Saxton as a beast because of his obscured appearance. And he's supposed to keep her in the house. um, And she can't really go far off the grounds, although she is allowed to, like, go riding and stuff because of the huge number of high the like high concentration of highwaymen in this area in Maubry. but she you know travels to london he lets her go out with christopher seaton who is his cousin to like a ball and everything so she's not really captured i guess you could say like the secretiveness of the staff is sort of like a spell but it's like what beyond the fact that saxton supposedly has this disfigurement makes him a beast. Nothing. He's kind to his servants. Like, he's running his hall. He pays his taxes well. Like, he's trying to build up the yeah. tenants. It's it's truly his deformity which makes him beastly. Yeah. Which is, like, so widowous with, like, anyone who, and I think we're encroaching on spoiler territory, heads up, but, like, anyone who looks bad is bad in a Woodowiss novel. Mm-hmm. And so when we meet Saxton, I was like, oh, well, this is interesting for her. <laughs> this might be a, another way of considering a character. Mm-hmm. It's weird because I feel like so many books, I'm thinking about For the Wolf, 
which is supposed to be like a Red Riding Hood story, supposedly, but is in fact very clearly like much more of a Beauty and the Beast type of tale. Absolutely. And it reads that way and it's understood as that. This likewise, like we can find its legibility, but I think the legibility is kind of in spite of itself. I think what makes this complicated or hard to read as itself is it's trying to be playful with the form but also hew really closely to it and the only way it hews closely is by constantly calling itself out right so christopher seaton's like the beast the beast and other people are like oh you want to have sex with that beast and it's like he is not beastly that's like he doesn't do any of the things that a beast would do other than like secretively like shuffle about and in fact he's surrounded by beastly characters including Christopher Seaton, who can be pretty beastly. I think what is striking to me is that it's so often prevalent in books that are also playing with it, but doing it much better. Like, I think Akatar is doing a much more interesting job of referencing the fairy tale. And I think uh, Beast by Judith Ivory is likewise kind of disregards, like, the origin story, which actually seems like it would be more important than Mm -hmm. it is. Like, likewise disregards the origin story and tries to tell, like, a reverse Beauty Mm -hmm. and the Beast, almost. Like, as a story, I think it's interesting, but I don't think this is that, you know? I don't think it is. Like, I think it's trying to be, but, like, really misses all of those marks. And ends up standing pretty well on its own, at least for the first half, as an interesting story. We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance. We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. So we were talking about how this isn't a beauty in the beast retelling. But I've been thinking about since we took our brief break, the fact that like, I went into this, assuming it was a beauty in the beast retelling, largely because of the word rose being in the title, and the fact that it's a romance novel, and the fact that it was voted on by listeners and people love a beauty in the beast retelling. I think it might be the most popular retelling in romance. I see one scene where someone with a mask is playing a harpsichord with a candelabra. And I'm like, no, this is Phantom. Mm -hmm. And it's also not Phantom because he's not actually disfigured. Nope. Turns out that super hot hands Christopher Seaton and one disfigured Lord Saxton are the same. Da, 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 da. So it's not Phantom. He's also not like molding Aaron into Arianne. Nope. So it's not that. What it is 100% 
is Bruce Wayne Batman. Absolutely. I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said that in the first part of this conversation. Like the fact that he's got dead parents that were murdered in front of him. Mm -hmm. He's got this like difference between revenge and justice. And like Aaron is just like literally a a beautiful sidetrack in what was his original story of like finding justice. And then he just like falls in love with this obviously awesome spitfire weirdo. And then she becomes his story. The Joker. (laughs) (laughs) Catwoman, she is not. And he has this like his public persona is this like rakish billionaire. Yep. Uh, who's incredibly charming. Yep. The moment that I realized that he, Seton and Saxton were the same person, the exact comment I had was, I'm just realizing now I've never seen Seton and Saxton in the same room. <laughs> it's definitely a Batman retelling. And so why doesn't a Batman story work as Beauty and the Beast? And I think you actually point out something really important here and that it we're getting the story from Aaron's perspective. Mm-hmm. We have brief dalliances into the perspective of Seton. We have brief dalliances, very brief dalliances into the perspective of Saxton. Absolutely no horse perspective in this book. Which is a surprise, honestly. Well, and it's a surprise that she stays so closely hewn to Aaron. Yeah. Like, Widowis is a bit of a head hopper. Yeah. Stack and trade. Right. And she doesn't in this book. But I think that's the deliberate choice so that we, the audience, like you don't – that's one of the things that's so great about this because like the the fact that Saxton and Seton are never in the same room together even though like the lies get more elaborate, like suddenly they're cousins and suddenly Saxton's okay with like him escorting her to a dance and like waltzing really close yeah. and like it gets more and more far-fetched but like we're so invested in the narrative by that point that like – there, there. You don't question it until Aaron begins to, and like you're so far gone at that point that like it's actually pretty amazing how she pulls it off. Honestly, I actually realized it before Aaron realized. Well, she it. realizes it so fucking late. What happened was, is I fell completely in love with this book. I started. I read this book for about six hours straight I would try to put it away and go to sleep and then I couldn't stop thinking about it and I would pick it up (laughs) and it got me about halfway through the book because this is a long ass book it got me halfway through the book and that's the point at which I realized where Christopher Seaton is supposed to take her to the ball Mm -hmm. in the stead of Saxton Mm -hmm. And that was when I said, I'm just now realizing I've never seen the two of them in the same room mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the hate that bubbled up my guts. No, really? Oh, no. Because you really wanted it to be a love triangle and that we'd finally see one of those like fully worked out. Yes. And I also realized that <laughs> the book was smarter than me. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't want a book that's this bad at executing a Beauty in the Beast retelling to be smarter than me. But it's that good at a Batman retelling, Morgan. How many people know Batman is Bruce Wayne? Not many. But Albert knows he's Batman. Mm-hmm. Robin, his child ward. A.K.A. Feral. Oh, that's good. That, yeah, that, that tracks. And sometimes Catwoman. So, like, not a lot. And so, like, I don't... 
that's what I'm saying. It's like, Woodrowus is a master. This book is quite smart and quite good at what it does. And like the difference between Seton and Saxton, both in how they're described through Aaron's perspective is so complete that, yeah, it isn't, I think, until that ball or for me, the first time I read it um, in the carriage that I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Wait. It's the same guy. It's the same guy. Aaron thinks that they're brothers. She does. Who are like tag, fully, full-blown tag teaming her. And she's really hurt that they're doing that. And that yeah, like. It hurts her feelings that they're running a train on her. <laughs> and she has this amazing rationale where she's like, obviously, Lord Saxton, it, we you know, was burned in the fire. And his super hot younger brother, Christopher, is the one who's been having sex with me because obviously Lord Saxton is incapable because of the fire. And so he needs an heir. And they're like perpetrating this like grand scheme against me. But like I wanted to be loyal to my marriage vows and I wanted to be loyal to myself and I came around on this whole thing about like you know the intimacies that I would have and these fuckers have just been fucking tag-teaming me (laughs) um emotionally and sexually which would have made for a more interesting book in some ways in all ways I mean, it's already, like, dubious, the fact that he's having sex with her without her knowing who he is. And she addresses, like, the moral problems and ethical issues with that. Mm -hmm. And he admits to seeing why that's wrong, which was another moment of, like, is this a Mm Woodowist? It makes me think about, like, I think she really, like, racked up her 10,000 hours. Like, this is so good compared to definitely compared to flame in the flower i yeah a thousand and ten percent way better than flame in the flower and for sure better than um not for sure better shanna's a lot a little bit closer i think but i enjoyed it much more than shanna absolutely this didn't have a holocaust of emotions and i think it dealt no with both the sex scenes and the moral quandaries in a particular way also for 1982 and for a widowist the whole thing about Aaron is that she's afraid to have sex with the people that her father have presented. That's one of her things. She wants them to be people she can respect, a.k.a. hot. But she's also literally afraid to have sex with them because they are scary. They're presented as, like, really menacing in the, in the text. And she's also afraid to have sex with Saxton. And he's like, listen, at your own pace, lady, like... I'm not going to ever come at you violently. There won't be that, right? Like, we're going to learn to trust each other. I just ask that you not lock the door on me so that I can just, like, wander in when you're naked. Which, for a widowess, that seems like a lot of growth. But she's still got buku bathtub scenes. Buku. This woman loves a bathtub. Freestanding copper bath. Absolutely adores it. And the this my favorite scene in Shanna mm-hmm. remains the bath, obviously. And I think Woodowis received that feedback from me from the future, <laughs> and then prepared this book, which is just every chapter concludes with a bathtub. It's so true, and it's so funny because when I was reading the scene where she thinks it's the maid Tessie who's gonna help her, and then we learn, of course, oh that it's God. Lord Saxton. I, <laughs> my note is, oh man, Morgan's gonna love this. Adored it. <laughs> I knew it as I was reading it. I loved it. 
Because it's so it's so full of longing and all the lights are soft and it's candlelight and her hair is tumbling down and it's steamy. And, you know, he's being so gentle and, she, you know, and we know who it is, but she doesn't know. It's like, oh, the dramatic irony is so tight. I mean, and I do want to assure listeners who are considering reading this book, Woodowist fans, who I'm sure if you're a fan like this is you've read it. Mm-hmm. But if you're just like a fan generally of this kind of literature even though there's not a holocaust of emotions we still get primo shit primo i would like to read for you a passage wherein aaron is having a a nightmare nice. a dream as if through a murky haze she saw a long fanged gaping jowls coming in for the kill then geysers of water sprang upward from the path of churning black hooves. A cloak figure swung down from the prancing steed and splashed through the stream towards her. Erin heaved a soft sigh as she settled into the sheltering arms of sleep, having been set to their courses by the willful determination of her mind. Her dreams took up the pattern. She stood amid swirling draperies, swirling draperies, lost in their never-ending lengths. In confusion, she ran hither and yon, not hither and yon. But <laughs> pastel shades of silken cloth held her prisoner. Mm. Then through pale-hued mists, a dark-cloaked shadow limped haltingly toward her. Though she fled, she found no escape, and it came ever nearer until her world became a blackened void. She drifted helpless, numb, wanting to sit or stand or scream, but paralyzed. Mm. Also, another highlight for me, um, this line says, a bowl containing a rich broth liberally laden with bits of vegetable and meat. And I commented, so, soup? (laughs) Uh, So good. That's why why we do this. This is why we suit up on a Sunday. So true. A bowl containing a rich broth, liberally laden with bits of vegetable and meat. Soup. (laughs) A.K.A. soup. (laughs) Oh, and then there's just like other stuff like this, though. So this is uh, Lord Saxon is talking to Avery, her bad dad. And the glove hand tightened on the handle of the cane long before Lord Saxton chose to reply. Tis a rare father who shows such confidence in his daughter. He issued a brief derisive laugh. Why one could easily mistake it for a lack of concern. Huh? Avery was momentarily perplexed. Never mind. Lord Saxton rose to his feet. She'll be going now. I have business to attend to in York. <laughs> Just like everything about lord saxon and like the long pauses and the descriptions of those pauses it's just like also it's so funny i think this is the funniest wood i've ever read um because like when so we've already blown the spoiler um but when aaron goes to confront christopher seaton about this like you know double train that is being perpetrated on her body um he's been shot in the side and (laughs) he's in the lord's bed and she's like really worried that lord saxon's gonna show back up and like want his bed back and be like why is this super hot dude in my bed and so she's concerned about it she comes to realization that they're brothers and then she like jumps in there and she's like (laughs) you got me pregnant you asshole and he's like again in his sick bed from being shot and he like sputters his tea out and he's like have a care with that news madam (laughs) 
Yes. A spit take. A spit take. A good old-fashioned spit take. So good. I love the names of her suitors as well. Silas Chambers, Smedley Goof Goodfield, who is described as having dewlaps, whatever that is. Smedley is the best one. Smedley Goodfield is the best one. Hartford Newton. Yeah, I think it was also like the funniest and and most lighthearted that we've read. It doesn't take itself too seriously. At parts, it feels like a great caper. Like I was reading, especially the third act, I was like, man, if this were the you know, fourth episode in a miniseries, I would be like fucking locked and loaded, ready to go. I know. Wouldn't it be great? There's yeah. Speaking of funny times, in chapter one, her brother gets drunk and she knows <laughs> that she's about to meet a suitor and he falls asleep in the living room on the floor. And she throws a rug over him behind a chair. Spreads a shawl over his face <laughs> to soften the snores. Then with calm deliberation, she smoothed her hair and gown. I just love that. So good. She just throws a shawl over him. Maybe maybe now is, is, time, is time to address our weirdest parts. Sure. My weirdest part is how long it takes Aaron to come around right because like I think to figure out the 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 gig yeah to figure gag. out the gist especially because like there are a bunch of like you know whispered conversations that she like almost bursts in on there are a couple of times where Lord Saxon is being told off by like various women like there's a beautiful lady that they meet in Carlisle and then there's like a strange woman in a garden and then there's like um, Aggie, the housekeeper, who's constantly sort of just like out of sorts with Lord Saxon. Um, it seems like Aaron is not stupid, and she's especially not stupid when she's around Christopher Seaton. So the fact that she's like takes so long to cotton on to who Lord Saxon is just like feels sort of I don't know a, a, a little dubious for me. That like honestly, that's my weirdest part. Definitely feels like it's trying to reach a word count. Yeah. Because it is one of those conflicts that is rather easily resolved and is eventually. Mm -hmm. Whatever happened to that woman that she sees him walking with in the garden in London? That's his mom. That's Countess Ashford. Okay, that that does come back. Yeah. There's also this element where they, like, make him, like, in addition to Christopher Seaton wearing the mask, as it were, of, why can't I remember, Saxton. He's also going out as the night Rider, mm -hmm. which is like such a hat on a hat. Yes, it is a hat on a hat for sure. So in addition to like her not, but she like rather quickly figures out that either Seton or Saxton is the night Rider. Mm -hmm. And that makes it all the more frustrating. At one point, Saxton says to her, you know, if there was another man who you would prefer to marry to me, mm -hmm. trying to get her to say, I actually was in love with Christopher Seaton, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what he wants. He wants her to say, I love Christopher Seaton. And then he's going to unmask himself and be like, surprise. Yep. That was his vision. That was his plan. It didn't work out. That was definitely his vision. He did not account for her being like, I made a vow to a stranger who bought me at an auction and I'm going to stand by it. He did not anticipate yeah. that. Do you know what? He also didn't anticipate his own charm. 
That's true, as Lord Saxton. And I think that also says something about Christopher Seaton's self-esteem. That's very much tied up in his in his appearance. <laughs> I think you're right. I don't think the book is conscious of that, but I am. Yeah. I am. I'm worried about him. I think that's right. I think he I think you just made a really good point about the tender mercies of uh, Christopher Seaton's big old heart. Well, and he is. He's so fucking tender he really is. as saxton yeah i mean you think of it as being like incredibly open and understanding but the only man he'd be jealous of is himself so go figure and he is he's like insanely jealous of the fact that like and they're both jealous of each other right because like and so like then you get this weird personality split where it's like seaton just wants to be her to like throw off saxton and saxton is just like can't you just like stop loving me but he's also like this is great (laughs) it's complicated it's very complicated and like i think this kind of gets to my weirdest part Mm -hmm. which is the fact that this is ultimately a -a wood-a-wiss and Mm -hmm. the outsides have to match insides and it gave me so much hope when i was reading saxton because the book isn't very sensitive about feral so um aaron's brother who it describes his injury like he got shot in the elbow and his bones set wrong and so he can't really use his right forearm to his bottom of his you know right hand and Farrell not realizing that Saxton is in fact his sworn enemy and the cause of his trouble Seton he Saxton kind of gives him this bootstraps conversation about how he's only as like injured as he is in his mind mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm going to teach you how to shoot with your left hand. And Farrell learns how to shoot with his left hand and he gets this confidence. But it turns out that that was all in bad faith because Saxon says, like, I know something about overcoming adversity. It's like, not really. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) It turns out. Like, he has a couple scars on his body from, I think, like, an accident on the ship once. They're all explained in, like, various ways because she, she does experience his nudity, his naked body. And realizes he has scars, and that's part of the reason she believes that she's having sex with this character, Saxton, that he's created. Mm -hmm. So that makes that disingenuous. And then it's also like, by the way, there's a surgeon who thinks he can remove the bullet that's still lodged in your elbow, and that's going to fix everything, which completely undoes how the injury is described in the first act and Mm -hmm. also suggests that like now that feral is sober and worthy now he can have the use of his arm back yeah there's also um an alcoholic man in the first part of the book called old ben yep and old ben serves as like an informant to christopher and he also shares with christopher that aaron is kind that she gives him food every once in a while but christopher just kind of uses him like buys him booze so that he'll ply him with information and then old ben ends up murdered yeah um you know we talked earlier about how like all of the villains are physically unattractive but like truly like repulsive sounding and it's not just villains like it's side characters like pretty much everyone who's not aaron or christopher seaton is somehow grotesque (laughs) Or they have a feature that makes what would have just been, like, average into, like, some weird thing, right? Because we've got the sheriff who turns out to be one of the big bads. And, like, he seems like he'd be fine just, like, 
fine, but obviously he sucks. Um, and like he's got dirt underneath his fingernails, which is revealed in the third act. And like Claudia, who is sort of Aaron's contemporary and peer and is the daughter of the like lord of the town, who's also a big bad, is just like this unrelenting harpy and hates Aaron because she's beautiful and kind of looks like her. And then there's this whole physical comedy scene in the third act where they have to switch clothes and Claudia can't get into Aaron's clothes and isn't it so funny and it's like that's actually not funny she can button up the boobs but not the waist yeah which feels like so high roll (laughs) right and it's stuff like that where I'm like ooh. so (sighs) there's some specific examples her father wants to confront her for not giving him and her brother any money since marrying saxton and he says the poor lad's been blinded by your meager show oh kindness but what really have you done for him have you been in the least bit charitable or sympathetic to his lameness is he any richer for coming out here nay he's had to work hard for the bit of coin he has and Aaron responds, in my opinion, Farrell's character has advanced considerably since he stopped rolling in self-pity and did something for himself. Aaron stated with conviction and a bit of anger. Charity or sympathy, if carried to extreme, can be the ruination of a good man. A person builds self-esteem after seeing the labors of his own hands reap a plentiful harvest. Aye, we should be charitable and kind to the less fortunate, but helping them do for themselves is infinitely more charitable than allowing them to mope in self-pity. Good, honest work is valuable to one's well-being. And <laughs> it just felt so, like, Reaganomics. Totally. Absolutely. Like, the the lie of them. But it's, like, applied to the fact of, like, a literal physical disability as well. hmm That's pretty upsetting. And there's <laughs> there's this part where... Avery is visiting his daughter, and she she now knows that her husband is Christopher Seaton. And so prior to this, because he wouldn't take off, he can't take his mask off in front of other people, he doesn't eat with other people. He just takes his tray in his room. And when Avery comes to visit post-uncovering of who Christopher Seaton was to Aaron, he still has to be, his identity still needs to be kept secret from the rest of the community. So... He's still appearing as Saxton in front of Avery and Farrell, who are visiting. And she tells her father that she's going to eat her meal with her husband instead of with her family. And the book says, Avery was astounded that the girl would openly prefer the company of that twisted face while she dined rather than take her food with normal people. And this is supposed to be one of the many times that is indicated of, like, a moral failing on the part of Avery. hmm But that's the perspective of the book. Aaron did not ever take a meal with Saxton, thinking that he was injured under his mask. So the thing that he's, like, the thing that is supposed to tell us that, like, Aaron is a better person than her father. She is, in fact, the same person as her father. Their perspective is shared here. Yeah. And this kind of slippage is, for me, the weirdest part. And there's something about the characters in this book, the fact that Saxton is supposed to have survived this 
burning, which in fact, he is the younger of two brothers and the older brother did die in the fire. Yeah, and is in an unmarked grave on the property. And like her brother is dealing with the aftermath of having sustained what will be a lifelong injury unless I guess he can get the bullet removed from his elbow because Miracle Doctor suddenly exists in York. (laughs) But also he got that inner injury in a duel with Seton over whether or not his father was cheating at cards and his father was cheating at cards. Which is also like a problem. But like that's a clear ethical problem, right? Yeah. I think the book is confused about the ethics around disability because the book does not want any good person to not be physically perfect. Correct. Before we realize that Claudia is a bad person, she's almost equal to Aaron in beauty. Yep. And then by the end of the text where Claudia is, you know, an active villain, well, now her boobs are too small and her waist is too big. Isn't that funny? Ha ha ha. But Farrell gets like a miracle cure. Yeah. It's the outsides matching insides. Like it's just... It's just, it's very disturbing in this book because it's clear that Erin only wants to, she doesn't even want to get to know ugly men. Like the fact that they have a mole on their face or a nervous disposition around her means that they're somehow a bad person. And the text takes that as fact. That they'd be associated with her father is also damning in terms of the text. I think one of the things that this conversation is bringing up for me is like outsides match insides that was our big problem with uh flesh and the devil um flame and the flower also but what it is is it it it, it's a kind of binary simplicity that is always and has always been a lie but is also much harder to take and for a book as complicated as this to revert to um pretty is good and ugly is bad binary feels so unearned in all of the other parts where this book is complicated and and I think when you pointed out that that Reagan speech that Aaron gives that's part of this too it just it's such a it's such a grandstanding simplicity that um yeah doesn't encounter any kind of nuance in fact it just like elides them or like landslides them over which for a book as fun and complicated as this feels like a real really sucks. It really sucks. I think grandstanding simplicity is exactly what it is. And I think what you said earlier about how this grandstanding simplicity, it undermines all of the like interesting, fun, complex things that happen. Yeah. And not unlike the execution of that like weird line about the beast must be cast from the two of us, right? It shows how, like, unearned... It makes the rest of the good shit feel unearned. Yeah, it does. Really undercuts it. And that's what makes me think that, like, you know, writers should not be conscientious of a project. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you should not set out with, like, an ideological project in mind for your romance novel. Because that's definitely the stuff that, like, fucks this book up. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely uh, Nancy Reagan's little... And so I think, you know, when they're getting ready to go to the ball and I realize that Seton is, in fact, or I guess I should say that Saxton is, in fact, physically perfect, tall, gray-green-eyed, 
Seton, I was, I felt like I had, I had trusted someone. Mm -hmm. And they done (laughs) you dirty. And they done me dirty. My trust had been betrayed. And like, I, I went into this so skeptical, right? And then I like fell in love in spite of myself because I don't think I actually am ever successfully skeptical. (laughs) And then to find out that like, oh no, this is the same pattern. Like this is the same author. This is the same kind of book was personally upsetting to me. Yeah, I can see why that would be. But also, it's so mean. It's such a mean way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. And actively unhelpful. (laughs) Yeah. What was your sexiest part? (laughs) Well, on the heels of that. Yeah, now now we arrive at the confession. What was the sexiest part for you? I'll let you go first because I have um, 18 lights. <laughs> All of them are bathtubs. Um, I, so I loved the carriage scene when they're coming back from the ball. Um, and Christopher Seaton uh, is digitally pleasuring Aaron. And she's like, just like all the skirts and the jostling of the carriage and like it's kind of furtive and you know she thinks it's wrong and like he can't help himself and like she wants it but she doesn't want it like I like it's so it's the complication of her feeling only adds to the excitement and makes it like this crazy mishmash and then directly on the heels of that and I think this is truly the sexiest part because they're not separated in my mind she has all of this sexual energy right and she's just like she's like Chris Chris. you can't I can't do this like you know I'm gonna go home to Saxton and he's like what the fuck and she has all this like sexual energy and she goes to the Lord's chamber for the first time in her wedded life and she goes Lord Saxton, you masked human, I need to have sex with you. (laughs) And you can tell that he's surprised um, as both Saxton and Seton. And uh, they have um, obviously non-consensual sex because she doesn't know who it is. Um, But it's like a really, it's, it's a really sexy scene. And I think it, it gets to something that's really true, which I don't, think happens in a ton of contemporary romances that I've read where it's like sometimes you have a sexual energy and you don't want it to go where like the the thing that inflamed your desire in the first place isn't the thing that you're going to act on and like that's such an interesting description of a real human phenomenon and this book did it so well and so authentically and that like also made the second part of that sex scene as sexy as the first part, which just creates all of this space for it's like, this is a sexual energy. I just now need to like reappoint the needle. Um, And I thought that was just really well done and like funny and also like kind. And like Lord Saxon is like, he's just so in love with her and just really sweet and also the bed itself is like ginormous and covered in these like velvet hangings and like very cozy very cozy okay so she's turned on by this other man Mm -hmm. 
And she decides that rather than burn with passion for him, Mm -hmm. she's going to give herself completely to her husband Mm -hmm. as an attempt to kind of like abate that attraction to this other man. Abate the attraction, also like assuage her guilt about being attracted. Like it is such a mishmash of feelings. So tell me where the tell me where the kindness is there. It's not obviously not for her, but like when Saxton is both surprised and like when Saxton puts the shoes to her, is that him being nice? No, let me find it. Oh, are you talking about the lovemaking itself? Because that is... Yeah, the lovemaking itself. I know what you're talking about. The t- it's very tender. The it's scene is very tender. so tender. She was distantly surprised, for she had half expected a fumbling eagerness and a rough uncertainty. But he was gentle, ellipses. So infinitely gentle. His hand wandered with deliberate slowness over every detail of her, as if savoring what he found, and she trembled beneath his lightest touch. So good. The lovemaking is very tender, yes. And it's like a full scene, and there is no holocaust of emotions at the end. Instead, it is a blissful aura <laughs> bursting <laughs> around them, bathing them in pulsating waves of pleasure that seem destined never to die. That is way better than a holocaust of emotions. Well, it doesn't use the word holocaust, so low bar. But <laughs> yeah. What is your sexiest scene? Before I do the full reveal, I want to talk about how lovely the proclamations of love are in hmm. this. Honor you, he breathed. Sweetest Aaron, how could I not? You are ever in my thoughts, bending me, twisting me, plucking at the fibers of my mind. The man inside me trembles whenever you're near, and I groan in agony for the touch of your hand laid upon me in a soft caress. I am beset with my desire for you, and if I thought for one moment that you would not loathe me forever, I would ease my lusts this very night, be you willing or nay." But I'd rather hear my name fall from your lips with words of love than snarled in tones of hate. Tis the one thing that keeps you safe from me, Aaron. Tis the only thing. Can you believe Kathleen Woodowis wrote that? Yeah, I can. Considering all the carriage rape she (laughs) put us through in the past. I think she did her 10,000 hours. I mean, what is hidden in that? I mean, not hidden. It's like, that's a threat of rape with the exception of, I want you to love me. (laughs) Otherwise, I would definitely take you against your will. Here's another one. This is as, so the last one was Seton. Mm -hmm. This one is Saxton. As I've told you before, madam, I purchased you because, oh, he calls her madam. Yeah, he does all the time. Saxton. As I've told you before, madam, I purchased you because I wanted you. Everything else is of secondary importance. The children you bear will undoubtedly be treasured because you will be their mother. Offspring by another woman might not be so dear. You are my lovely Aaron, the one who has haunted my thoughts and dreams. So good. But the sexiest part. Okay. So they're traveling. Saxton and Aaron together. Mm-hmm. And... We are on, we're in the 200s of a 500-some page book, 563-page book. And it has just been wall-to-wall longing, gang. 
just constant professions of love, not just from Saxton, but from Seton. Yep. Right. I am convinced Erin and her whisper of a waste are all that I need in the world. It's just been relentless. And Saxton and Aaron are traveling to London to visit some family friends of his. And they stay in a hotel. And naturally, someone sees Aaron and he's like, I'm going to have my way with her. And so she's laying, she, she and Saxton get separate rooms because Saxton respects her and obviously wants to keep his identity a secret until she's ready to profess her love to Seton or whatever. So they have separate rooms across the hall from each other. And she hears a knock on the door late at night and she assumes it's him. I assumed it's him as well. And my heart's all flutter. And I'm like, oh, my God, is it going to be just one bed? (laughs) But no, it's this drunk from downstairs and he's going to try to have his way with Aaron. And she fights him off. But in order to escape, she kind of bursts into Saxton's room. Mm -hmm. And Saxton gets out of bed and she can't really see his face, but he's like completely nude and she can like see like the outline of his body in the moonlight and he gets rid of the other guy and he comes up to her and she's kind of started looking at him lustfully and he stepped to lend his assistance slipping a hand to her waist of course as she rose though she braced herself for the contact the warmth of his touch penetrated the thin cloth are you all right His whisper was no longer bore the lisping quality the mask lent to his voice, but still seemed oddly strained. (laughs) Aaron kept her gaze carefully averted. I'm sorry for the intrusion, my lord. I heard a knock on my door, and I thought it was you. I opened it. No need for your apology, madam, his rasping whisper assured her. I can well understand why the man made the attempt. You are a rare prize indeed, and I cannot be offended by your willingness to admit me into your chambers. His hand lightly caressed her back through the fragile fabric, and though she stood unmoving, every nerve in her body tightened. Will you stay in here with me? And that's when I collapsed. This is so good. That's so good. What's so good is that he's also literally trying to tell her at, like, numerous points. Like, that's one where he 100% would have been like, hey, BTW at me. Um, And then she said no. Yeah, she said no. (laughs) But I was like... No, now I have to long some more, which is my favorite thing to do. Right. I I do think the sex scenes in the book are very sexy, but for me, that one, like, simple, will you stay in here with me, just was too much. It's so good. It was too much. The, the secret nude, the shadowy nudity, the mm. mystery. Ugh. It was just too good. And I still thought Saxton was just Saxton at that point. Womance or no mance. Uh, this is a womance. I would like to remove, in fact, the womance penance from the other Woody Wisses. Mm. I don't think I gave Flame and the Flower a womance. I don't think I, I... I don't know. I'd have to revisit. <sighs> Do I? God, she's such a fucking problem she's a huge problem but i think she also is like so representative of a problem of where it's like you must examine the things that give you pleasure well she is like like it's like she's exemplary like she created it did she create this like is she one of the beside like is it her and em hull who have created this 
heteronormative hellscape that is romance novels. I don't think Kathleen Woodowis or E.M. Hall, to be fair, uh, created the patriarchy. And I don't think, like, they're, they're, they're so good at highlighting the parts that are delicious and they're so good at telling on themselves about the parts that suck and are they good at it because i don't i don't have confidence that people reading this are realizing what a ethically morally bankrupt (laughs) depiction of human value this is i don't think people did in 1982 i would be willing to bet a lot that they didn't but i think you know 1982 is a foreign shore and like it's distressing how similar things are and how much they haven't changed but in this way i think um characters this flat and like outsides matching insides this um incessantly and this insidiously it wouldn't fly today and in like a barnstormer book selling way like this could this does this version of as you call it um what did you call it bankrupt morality (laughs) this certainly exists in spaces all over uh you know ebooks and like the wild wild west of kindle unlimited like i'm not saying that this doesn't exist because it does you and i have encountered it like a version of this is also like the (laughs) the dragon dick book that you know never had a dragon but also, dick like tessa bailey and like the absolutely infantilization right that's a barnstormer and that's something that's come out recently and i understand 19, 1985 is that when did this come out 82 1982 that's the year my brother was born i know my mom my mom isn't a foreign shore you know she could have been a reader of this book and she could have been the type of person to enjoy this book. And I know that because I'm the type of person who enjoyed this book. And so I don't know how much of a foreign shore it is. It's a foreign shore in the sense that... I, I don't think that, like, it's not even that the zeitgeist has changed that much. That's super duper true. And we are in the midst of a backlash, just as 1982 was a backlash, which is why I think... Right. This stands out to me, and Woodowis in general stands out to me because she is functioning inside the backlash, right? Especially bodice rippers were functioning inside of the backlash to the Equal Rights Amendment. And, like, like the height of second-wave feminism had crested by this point, and the backlash had really set its teeth. Um, and I think, like, in so many ways, Woodowis's grandiose simplicity is also the hallmark of like phyllis schlafly right where she's like women belong at home even while she's traveling 360 days a year and has childcare and is doing the things that she wants but the but the problems we talked about in this book don't really have to do with equality and i think i think they I do like have to do with equality they, not equality between genders right like i'm we're talking about depictions of disability and physical difference or just merely not being uh mainstream sexy yeah and it's all connected but i i think we're more alike to woodowis and 
definitely the readers of what her contemporaneous readers. I mean, she loved Hummingbird just like we love Hummingbird. A strangely much more uh, nuanced and careful novel. And I think that's the thing is like you can you can enjoy things while expressing I think you said it you know telling on yourself right but I I have to say like I don't think it's that different from some of the contemporary popular novels to us that we've read they have these blind spots and I think it's easy to like point them out in Woody Wiss because it feels more comfortable pointing them out in Woody Wiss Mm -hmm. or it feels more comfortable at least for me to point them out in these more classical texts. I also think like they were a lot more balls to the walls. I think they're a lot less cagey. I think that's what it is, right? Like I think this kind of stuff has really gone to ground. It's it's much more implicit and insidious than this is. Like Woody Wiss has no qualms about the fact that there's no nuance. She's like, you ugly, you ugly on the outside, you ugly on the inside. But not just like ugly, like you're broken and you deserve it then. Yeah. Like, whatever society doles out to you, like, you deserve the scraps that you will be given. Unless you can, like, fight your way to the top. And she probably thought that she was being really generous. I'm sure she did. And that's the thing. I think there are still romance. I think you're, I think people have become more cagey about it, but I think these attitudes are still there. And I think it's, you know, for me, at least, holding myself accountable, I think it's a lot easier for me to, like, wave my flag against, like, this books from this era than it is from you know recently published stuff I don't know why do I think that like someone's gonna confront me <laughs> I mean they're gonna be like it's my mortgage <laughs> and like be a I better mean, person <laughs> it's a really easy fix just like undo all the knots of like how you were raised and the media you've consumed and how your parents felt about each other, which is based on how your grandparents felt about each other. You yeah. Know, like, just undo all of that. You're um, fine. You can do it. And then you'll, and then it'll be a good book. But I think that's the thing. Like, it is enough that this book is phobic about physical difference, right? That is enough. That it's very much holding up, like, white supremacy mm-hmm. in the form of, like, tiny, violet-eyed, wayfish and it's also you know it's ableist it's ableist yeah as well and that's enough but it's not just that it's also that the ableism (laughs) breaks her narrative and like creates an inconsistent story Mm -hmm. it's just bad writing and that's why whenever it rears its head whenever it becomes apparent it's offensive twofold and yet Reading this book, at least the first 300 pages, which is yet again enough. (laughs) Well, maybe like the first 250 pages and then the last 100 pages is like riveting and set my heart aflutter. And I saw my like most secret fantasies on the page and I felt like I was so grateful to read like scenes of tender lovemaking mm-hmm. that feel so missing from our current moment. I think that because I can do it, mm-hmm. I am sure that there were readers in 1982 who could do it and were, obviously. I think that's one of the dangers of romance being so secluded 
is that if we're only buoying our private pleasures, then this richness, this ripe conversation that's available in romance is never going to surface. Or it's going to surface as caricature. What do you mean by that? I guess, I mean, I jumped the gun. You hadn't finished your thought, but it depends on who you're talking about in terms of having this conversation. Like romance is incredibly discreet in terms of its genre. We've talked about this before. So when other people talk about it, right, people outside the genre, it's often through caricature. And I think part of the reason it's so easy to do that is because romance isn't having this conversation with itself. Yeah, I don't think it's having this conversation in this current moment, Mm -hmm. right? I think a lot of people are looking back on Woodowis and, you know, bodice rippers as like relics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they're able to kind of comfort themselves and that the things that they enjoy reading, the things that they have a preference for, aren't this bad. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying I think that a lot of them are this bad and also not as well written like the characters aren't even as interesting (laughs) the characters and the plots are boring as well yeah i think reading this woodowis and being knowing it was a woodowis going into it knowing what my experiences had been with her texts in the past and then still getting swept up in it and then still also feeling personally wounded by the text when i just kind of like slightly opened my eyes more. I don't think I've been slightly opening my eyes more. I don't think I've been going into reading contemporaneous texts with this same kind of alertness, you know? I think you you and I have to fall on the tripwire for us. At least like you brought up Tessa Bailey and she seems like a really obvious one. But I think we've also pointed out the problems of like Alicia Rye. And I think in our contemporaneous moment, classism seems to be like a real stumbling block but i also think probably ableism yeah absolutely you know i think white supremacy is also way more prevalent it's just like you said these things have gone to ground i think also like people have learned how to couch things right and distract you with like the sock puppet over here of like you know token characters yeah and I've just been looking at token characters and going like, look at that token character. And I've never thought for a second like, well, what's going on around this character? You know, mm-hmm. like I just haven't been that sharp. But I, I think the other thing that I feel like is a real failing, and we've talked about this in the past, is the assumption that readers in the past were somehow different from us in some significant way that allowed some allowed air quotes rape to become de rigueur in historical romance right? i don't think it's that readers were different it's that attitudes and laws were different i think laws you will find are reverting so i i don't that also makes me think <laughs> i mean like if up until 1992 if, it was legal to rape your wife it's also now again illegal to get an abortion like who knows what other thing will be repealed absolutely like, it's just it's just it's I think it's important to note, right, like, you legally could not rape your wife is what it was. It wasn't rape if she was your wife. And I think it's important to note that that lack of law existed, you know, through essentially apathy on the part of the ruling class, which remains 
than as it is now, though to a slightly lesser extent, like white male. Mm-hmm. I I think Kathleen Woodowiss's readers would not have held that same worldview that you couldn't be raped by your husband. For sure. There probably were some that did. Like, if we take too much comfort in the idea that, like, because of when we were born or where we were born, we're somehow going to be immune to these attitudes or even, like, above being able to enjoy something like the Rose in Winter. Mm -hmm. Because I think if I look at Morgan, you know, when we first started this project, she definitely thought she would be above enjoying a book that depicted rape right Mm -hmm. or above enjoying a book with dubious consent and Morgan now realizes that that was never true (laughs) um and that we're all kind of in the same I want to say garbage pail of ideology but that's not what I mean I think you we had this conversation a little while back where it's like it's hard it's hard to see if you're like, it's hard to admit that you might be regressive because progression is so comforting, right? Like, the long arc of history leans towards justice. Like, you know, Obama said it. Everybody said it. It's like, it, it is comforting because it doesn't ask anything of you. Like, you just have to wait it out and, like, justice will happen. And it's like, that's actually not how the universe bends ever. And you correctly pointed out that we've lost the constitutional right to our autonomy in our lifetimes, right? Like, my daughter was born less free than I was. And that's a horrific thing to think about f- all the time, but it also feels of a piece of the conversation that we had a little while ago where it's like in the 1940s when Uncle Sam needed women to go to the factories because all the men were fighting overseas, we had federally subsidized child care. We had federally subsidized health care because we needed these women out of the homes and into the jobs to get the war done. And as soon as the boys came home, we were like, all those rights that you just had, all those gains that you just made, we're going to take them back. And they did. And I think you're right to point out that, you know, we've charted quite a bit of personal growth <laughs> in terms of like the – I think we started this show with a sort of like don't yuck my yums uh, sloganeer type feeling where it's like, oh, we wouldn't be into that or like it's okay as long as you can like be open-eyed about it. But I really appreciate what you just said about – the things that we think about ourselves that this project that you and I have embarked on has really forced us to confront. And ultimately, I think like that's the missing piece. It's like there's a ton of confrontation in our society, right? We're super duper polarized. It's as polarized as it's been since the 1960s. Okay. Um, but what's missing in the confrontation is the actual confronting of self. Like where what does it take to say this thing inside of me needs now to be worked on. When we're talking about how a book becomes canon, and I think Woody Wiss, I think in romance, like authors become canon, right? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. How does someone become canon when their books are so hurtful or the content of their text has so many edges, so many sharp edges, and a complete lack of regard for them. 
And I think there's something else going on because I think we're not talking about something that's getting taught in college classes. We're talking about something that enters and creates its own canon, is part of its own environment based on its own readers. And so I think that hyper-personalized experience from me kind of living it out and having that moment of realizing like I'm not different from a reader in 1982. Like I can get as much pleasure from this. I ponder the contours of how Woodawis became canon, I guess. Like why Woodawis and not Laverle Spencer? I mean, she came first. I think we put like a lot of onus on that. <laughs> there are a lot of people who came first and had way less successful careers. Absolutely. So saying that she was first, I don't think is enough. Like, the, and also reading this book showed me like it's simply not enough. Like, I loved the exhilaration of Shanna, but I didn't think it was good. This is good. Yeah. This is something I wish I owned a physical copy of and I could return to, even with all of its sharp edges. And I think that's something about romance is like, what are we able to reconcile or deal with for our own personal pleasure? And what does that say about being a romance consumer? We tend to reproduce the content we consume, Mm -hmm. at least to some extent, right? That's why we read so many fucking Beauty and the Beast retellings. Mm -hmm. And what is like, and what is this fuel that we're putting in? And what can it tell us about the fire that we're getting out now? is kind of what I'm pondering and I'm having and I'm just I'm just not convinced by any idea that I'm different from the people who read this and I significantly different from the people who would have read this when it was first published who would have buoyed Woodowis into canon I think I would have been one of those people I think I would be one of those people like if I had read this book and it came out yesterday I'd be like baffled by it <laughs> But I would still enjoy it, you know? Yeah, it's good. It's good writing. So what is that? <laughs> you know, this idea of the personal as political often gets softened in conversation around romance because there's a lot of girl bossing about it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be like, oh, it's white woman consumerism. It's probably partially that <laughs> is what made What a Wiss popular. I'm thinking like, Kathleen Woodowis is saying something about the moment in which she was published, but she's also telling me, reading her books is also telling me a lot about myself in this current moment. And I wonder what the books that I'm reading now that are published in the year 2023, I wonder what they will relay about who I was. Like, do I want the hating game to represent me to future generations of romance readers? (laughs) That's a good question, because then this also brings up for me our other projects, right? Like, what is Jane Eyre saying to us when it was written in 1844? And what is Jane Austen saying to us when she was publishing in 1818? And, like, the thing is, is, like, it's just the same old shit. Men are bastards, and you will forgive them. (laughs) Because you really don't have a choice. (laughs) Yeah, that I think longing is universal and that, you know comedies of errors are always funny um and that white supremacy is pretty hard to escape but i also think like you know these are all like little isms i think there's something else happening i think like there's something to be said about the consistency 
of what we can trace through romance. Mm-hmm. And like the thing about the flame and the flower is that as pleasurable as it is, none of the problems in it have been socially fixed. So it's not even something I feel like I can shrug off and be like, oh, it was another time, you know. Like I myself can see it critically in a text, right? But Mm -hmm. I know that there are lots of readers who are down the street from me who would not feel the same way and who would be like, yeah, why doesn't Farrell just get his shit together? You know? Yeah, it was Farrell's drinking that was the problem, not the fact that he was critically injured. Also, it's his critical injury is like a character flaw. Right. (sighs) And so that's how it leaves me unsatisfied. But... I would still peg it a womance above her other books, which I also pegged a womance. I still loved it. I still yeah, want to buy it. And that's a and the, and I guess at the end of the day, that's on me. This is a little <laughs> this is a personal journey, but I know that like there are other people listening to this who also like Kathleen Widowis and probably would not speaketh her name out loud. But I'm there I'm there with you. I don't think you're necessarily a bad person. No, and I think, like, that's the thing about saying that you like something is, like, acknowledging its sharp edges, as you say, is a critical part of, like, being the kind of consumer who's aware of what they're consuming and thinking about what kinds of waters that's making. The fact that, you know the people who become romance producers, content creators, the people who become authors are readers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, you know, kind of conscientious of what you're consuming, then you might not be conscientious of the pieces that you're regurgitating. For sure. And like, you know, (laughs) I think romance is is a good space to investigate it but i was fucking undone when i asked somebody about dune and they're like why would i read a book that hates women and i was like what uh but yeah upon my third reading it is very clear that dune is not a book that respects women very much <laughs> but it took me three readings and someone telling me that for me to really get it because when you like something and when it sounds familiar enough uh you can you can really uh gloss over those sharp edges yeah and i think romance as like a marketing a space of marketing does a lot of that work by being like pleasure is political read romance fight patriarchy that's doing a lot to numb us but so is stuff like you've come a long way baby Yeah, I yeah, for sure. I, or even just the idea that we live progressively. It's like that's not true. Clearly, we can see that because we read Jane Eyre. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think this is this is a call to snag your sweaters a little bit on the sharp edges of what you consume and investigate those snags. Yeah. And you know, it's I'm I still don't feel fully reconciled you know, as much for as much as I enjoyed the book, I think like learning to accept that I just like things is is it, like I can't. <laughs> I don't know if I ever can uncomplicatedly enjoy something. Well, that's not what this podcast for, Morgan. No. <laughs> So get that straight out of your fucking head. Yeah, like we don't come here to enjoy something unadulterated. 
Was it a romance for you also? Yeah, of course. <laughs> fucking, are you kidding me? Alex, <laughs> the Lord Saxton Seton, fucking absolutely every part of it. It's also so much funnier either way. It's so much funnier than her other ones. Like, it, yeah, I think you said that she did her 10,000 hours and I think like that's really clear here. Like it, Like the end is just such a romp. Like they like... They, like, kill all the bad guys. The townsfolk get involved, his tenants. They, like, bring their pitchforks, and it's, it's just... You definitely get the sense that she may have been trying to write high literature at some point. And then here accepted that she's writing a fun book for fun. Exactly. Like, at some points it even sounds like, you know, Christopher Seaton is just, like, quoting Wesley from Princess Bride. It's, like, very much of that sort of, like, romance adventure that just is, like it's like a warm bath and i have yet another book i have a complicated relationship with so i have a lot to mull over but i mean that kind of makes it all the all the juicier i suppose yeah true story god i just hope we fix the world in the next couple episodes that would be good because i am i am exhausted <laughs> we're not done yet baby <laughs> Uh, with that, loosen your stays, but never your principles. Mwah. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Romance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.